Uh, and I'd like just, just to read it again to remind us uh, a little bit about what the mission of this class is. Um, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's sort of what we've tried to do here. We've tried to keep this on a, a little bit of a theological and higher teaching level, but certainly no one should feel excluded, and no one should think that we're just here to pass out knowledge and be a school, but we should prepare ourselves for works of service, and we should leave today prepared to do that in some way that we weren't when we came in the door this morning. With that in mind, there is uh, two things of housekeeping to keep up. Uh, we will meet for eight weeks uh, to discuss Peter. I'll announce the rest of the program as we go. But there's also been a calling by Dr. Guy for anyone who's been to the Israel trip. He would like you to bring pictures that we could perhaps put up as part of the backdrop for this class, pictures of Israel where uh, that are important in the life of Peter. And he would like that to be a part of the class. He would like that to be part of our maturity and teaching and sharing with others our good fortunes of being able to go to Israel and to uh, celebrate uh, the life of Peter and to praise God. With that in mind, let's open in prayer. Father God, as we come back together as the Westminster class today, I was reminded of the scribe Ezra. The people there, after the wall was built, stood and praised God. And they said amen, and they fell with their faces to the ground. And we humble ourselves before you as we open this year of the Westminster class. We praise your name, and we say amen. And the books were opened, and the people understood as Ezra read. And their weeping turned to joy. And they left that place with the command that go enjoy and be fruitful. And that's my prayer for us today. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome back. Well, thank you. It's nice to be back. I see a lot of uh, old faces, and I don't mean that negatively. I see a lot of fresh faces, too. So. Welcome. Uh, if I don't know you, uh, well, this is presumptuous on my part. If I don't know you, I would like to know you. You may not want to know me, but if you do want to know me, say hi. Come and say hi to me at the end of the class or sometime during the class so I can get to at least know your name. And um, Come on in. You're not late. We're, we're just... <laughs> now, actually, I, I have one little piece of housekeeping. This is what I want to clarify. Dan said photos. What I would really like, are there any of you who went, how many went on the Israel trip? Are there any of you who are uh, PowerPoint gurus? And that's what I thought. I, well, what I was hoping to do is to have somebody send their digital photos to a collection point on particular uh, areas, like Next week, uh, we're going to be talking about this Peter's encounter with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And everybody that was on that trip, uh, I took like a gazillion photographs of the Sea of Galilee, right? So we should have some really cool ones. That's what I would like is like to have some pictures of, of the Sea of Galilee sent to Richard. <laughs> yeah, we'll work on it. But could you, would you do it? Would you, do you have time? We'll work on it together. Okay, so if you have some digital photographs, we'll work on it. Think about that. Okay, uh, welcome to this course. This is a course on the Apostle Peter, his person and his proclamations. It's going to be an eight-week course, and uh, Zev and I have been meeting over the summer and praying and talking about this, so we've, every course is what is called a reductionism or an abstraction, but we're going to take eight critical stages in Peter's life uh, that show his journey into Jesus. Now, what did you tell me one day at breakfast the good thing about uh, studying Peter was? 
He gives hope to a whole lot of us if, if we screw up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, here we have a classic example of a person I think that we can all relate to. Uh, we're going to see his stages, obvious his failures, his tremendous breakthroughs. And then what we're going to do every week is then we take the, the story from the Gospels and then take you over to his writings, his proclamations. And we're going to interweave the historical uh, events of his life when he was a young man and then look at his reflections on what it means to be a, a Christian and an apostle many years later. And we hope out of that will come a great learning experience for all of us. So, having said that, we'll jump right into another thing I want to talk about, the style that we're going to study on. Uh, is this class shy? Is it shy? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I am, uh, hello, come on in. Um... Just seat here if you don't mind sitting by me. <clears throat> the style, interactive. This class traditionally has some really great personalities in it. You can always count on them for a lot of interaction. I want all of you to feel free to ask any question that you want. Zev and I love interactive teaching. We love it the best. So when you have a question, uh, we have to remember always, though, that the first rule when you study with Zev and I is what? What's the first rule about questions? There is no such thing as a dumb question. How many times have you heard me say this? Many times, right? Do you, how many believe it now? How many believe it? There is no such thing as a dumb question. Like, see, only eight of you still believe it, and that's ridiculous. Come on. I want you to use your imagination here for a second just before I introduce Zev. Um, let's say you're a Christian here and you've said to the Lord Jesus, okay, I'm serious. Here's my life. Do whatever you want with it. And many of you may have said that. What if it turned out then that the Lord said, okay, I'm gonna take your life and I'm gonna write up a, like a little condensed narrative of, your journey in Christ. And I'm going to tell it from my point of view as I have seen you through your life. And we're gonna write up this little story. And, and unfortunately, yes, it will include um, those zones in which you weren't um, doing too well. Let's put it that way. And we're gonna put the whole package together and then I'm gonna hand it out to the world and say, this is how I work with fallen, broken people. How many would like to have that experience? <laughs> I, I say that because, you know, I have heard I, so many sermons on poor Peter. He gets hammered and drilled into the ground and made fun of, and, and people say, well, how can you be? Come on in. The good thing about being a Christian, the door's always open. In this course, I want you, when you read Peter, instead of saying, what a blockhead, ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to give you the grace so that you can see yourself. And uh, <laughs> it can get quite challenging when you do that, but let's do that. This isn't about Peter's foibles, it's about how God works with all of us. Having said that, Zev, come and teach us what you're going to share with us. This way. How's that for the glare? Okay. Okay, there we go. Now I'm on. Um, what we're going to do, as John said, is look at particular events in Peter's life. And what I'm doing this morning is pretty much taking the event in Peter's life that is, at least in the Gospel of John, sort of the first in terms of his relationship with Jesus. So this is really where it begins. And then we're gonna do some backfill on that from <clears throat> my particular area of expertise in the Jewish tradition 
about some of the significance that this event could have. And the first thing that we are going to look at is, Peter, is Simon getting a new name. Simon getting a new name of Peter. And the passage I want us to look at is in the Gospel of John. I'd look, uh, it's chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. You too, you look great. Hmm? Okay. Now, our usual procedure in these classes is that there is a microphone, and we usually ask people to read the passage so that you're not always listening to my voice. Okay, so would someone like to read John chapter 1, verses 40 to 42? Okay. Thank you. Unfortunately, you have to use a mic. No. <laughs> okay, uh, John chapter 1, 40 to 42. 40, 41, and 42. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Okay. Anybody else have a different version that. Okay. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John's witness and followed Jesus. The first thing he did after finding where Jesus lived was finding his own brother, Simon, telling him, we found the Messiah, that is, Christ. He immediately led him to Jesus. Jesus took one look up and said, you're John's son, Simon? From now on, your name is Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. Okay. I think we've got enough of the sense of that. All right, now this is, in the Gospel of John, the very first encounter between Jesus and Peter. So what's the first thing that Jesus does? What? He gives him a new name, okay? And in particular, the verb that is used there is you will be called... Peter, Cephas. Cephas in Aramaic, kepha, means rock. Petros in Greek means rock. Now, you're probably familiar with another passage in the Gospel of Matthew where that is done, and we'll get there. But for one thing, I want to ask a couple of questions. Based on this passage and this passage alone, who was the first to confess that Jesus is the Messiah? Andrew, not Peter. It's Andrew who goes and finds his brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah. Okay, so keep that in mind, especially when we get to, to Matthew. Secondly, uh, does anybody, can anybody think of what it might mean that the first thing that Jesus does when he sees Simon is to give him a new name? He sees him differently than what? That everybody else does. Okay. He sees him differently from the way everybody else does. Other possible understandings. Yeah. He sees his spirit. He sees something inward. You know, the, okay. Other possible, yeah. This is a turning point for Peter. Yes, it is a turning point, okay. The name predicts the future. The name predicts the future, okay. 
All of these are excellent insights into the meaning of this event. Now, does anybody have any first blush guess at why Jesus names Simon Rock? Cornerstone of the church? We're going to look at that a little more deeply. Okay. All right. Could it possibly, is it always necessarily a complimentary thing to be called a rock? Because he has a head like a rock. Yes. Okay. Now, can anybody think of other instances in the Bible where someone gets a new name that marks a turning point in their life? What? Saul becomes, well, that's not in the Old Testament, but Saul becomes Paul, yeah. Abraham goes from Abram to Abraham, and I heard somebody over here saying, Jacob becomes Israel. Actually, we're going to look at that as sort of the paradigmatic Old Testament case of a name change. But I want to look at the whole subject of names and naming in ancient Israel. Because this is the necessary basis in the context to understand what we're looking at. And the first thing that I want us to look at is in Genesis chapter 2, Verses 18 to 20. Oh, I'd love to see it. Okay. Okay. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Fair to middle. Fair to middle. Okay. Someone like to read? Genesis 2, 18 to 20. The Lord, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man and see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Further, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Okay. Now, to see what he would, you said name them, Anyone else have another verb there? Call them. Okay. Now, where does this come in the life of Adam, humankind? In other words, we're here in Genesis. Well, yes. I mean, in other words, we just had the idea of, you know, Simon getting a new name. That's the first act, if you will, of his relationship with Jesus. What is this in terms of the life of Adam? Where does this come in the life of Adam? It's the very first act recorded of humankind. It is the very first thing that human beings do. Okay? So, this makes it important. It says something about what it is that makes human beings human. So what is the Adam doing at this point? Naming. It's linguistic. 
He's creating language. Okay, now let's look at the original pattern for this. All right, and now we're looking a little farther back in Genesis 1, verses 3 through 10. A little longer passage. Who would like to read Genesis 1, 3 through 10? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And I couldn't have paid you to do a better job of emphasizing that key word. Okay? The key word here is the word called. In Hebrew, kara. Okay, kara, to call a name. So who is the first being that calls names? God. Who is the second being that calls names? Adam. Okay, what does that tell you about that relationship between God and humankind. What? Pretty close. Pretty close. Made in the image and in the likeness of. Thank you. Precisely. Okay. This is part and parcel of what it means for humankind to be made in the image and likeness of God is the ability to call the name. To call the name. So it is part of our divine image and likeness. Now, I want us to take a look back again in chapter 2, verse 20. And I won't ask anyone else to read this. Chapter 2, verse 20. The Adam called names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper, a suitable partner for him. Okay, so what is the net result of Adam calling names to the animals in terms of the situation of Adam's life. There was none like him. Ah. In other words, it is not only part of the image and likeness of God, but it separates Adam from the other creatures. Why? Adam is made in God's image and they're not. Well, I, 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 you said shows he has dominion. I, I want to stay away from that word dominion. But it does show divine authority. Okay? Divine authority. Because don't forget that the idea is that Adam was placed in the garden to care for it. Not to exploit it, not to dominate it, but to care for it. 
That's where we get our idea of stewardship. By the way, you know, I don't know, some churches are starting into their stewardship campaign. Anybody know what the etymology of the word steward is? What? One who feeds. It actually comes from the Old English sty ward. (laughs) Sty ward. The steward was the pig keeper. Okay, so get this idea of domination out of your minds. This is an act of stywardship. Okay, now, I want us to take a look at the second half of verse 19, just before that, because it's a little bit odd. And whatever the Adam called every living creature, that was its name. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit sort of like a tautology? Whatever the Adam called every living creature, that was his name. But what is it really saying here when it says whatever the Adam called that was its name. What is it saying about naming? It's important. Why? What does a name do? It relates to the nature of the one named. In other words, this is something critical to understand if you're going to get that Hebrew understanding of what it is that the act of naming does and what a name does, it expresses the nature of the thing named. It's not just an arbitrary label. That's why throughout the Hebrew scriptures, one of the things that you'll always find is that when someone is given a name, it's given an explanation of why they were given that name. Why? Because the name expresses something about the individual named. It expresses, if you will, the very nature, the very essence of that individual. Okay? Now, exhibit A. For a name change is undoubtedly the story of Jacob being renamed Israel. So first of all, we need to take a look of how he got the name Jacob in the first place. So I'm looking at Genesis 25, 21 to 26. Genesis 25... 21 to 26. Any volunteers? Okay, I'll read it. Okay, and uh, let's see, 25. And Isaac prayed, okay, no, 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 no. Maybe I got the wrong numbers here. Hold on, da, 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 da. Okay, actually, no, I did have the wrong verse numbers. My bad. (laughs) It's 24 through 26. When her days, that is, Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they named his name Esau. Now, again, the pun here is red. The Hebrew word for red is adom. Adom, which is the Hebrew word for Edom. And Esau was the father of the Edomites. So, that's... Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So, his name was called Jacob. Yaakov. Yaakov. Now, here, I'm just going to have to tell you. 
The word for heal is a cave. A cave. So the word Yaakov means he grasps by the heel. Okay, he grasps by the heel. But it also has another meaning. Anybody care to guess what the other meaning of Yaakov is? What? He cheats. He cheats. He's a trickster. He's a cheater. Okay? And to really see how that plays out, what was the big act of cheating that Jacob does? Anybody know? What? He tricks his father into giving the older brother's blessing. Okay? So let's take a look at Esau's reaction when this all comes out in Genesis 27, 34 and 36. If I got it right, yes. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me, also my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Yaakov, Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. He cheats. He's a cheater. Okay. So that's really what the name Yaakov implies. Now, what happens after this is that Yaakov has to run for his life from Esau, and he's sent over to Haran to his uncle Laban's house, where he spends a good deal of time in the process acquiring two wives, two concubines, 11 kids, and a lot of cattle and sheep. And eventually he has to flee from Laban and he's coming back and he sends greetings to his brother Esau who he hasn't seen in quite a while yet. And they said, oh, yeah, the messengers come back and says, your brother Esau is coming to meet you with 300 armed men. (laughs) So Yaakov, the cheater, is a little bit concerned about this situation. He splits his host into two camps and he prays to God. He sends everybody over the other bank and then he is left alone. One of the greatest passages, I think, in the entire Hebrew Bible is this passage in Genesis. Thirty-two, twenty-two to 30. And here I will ask someone to read it, please. Okay. 32, 22 to 30. Mm-hmm. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his 11 sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent them sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Okay. 
other possible translations there. The one that I really think is, how are you called? My name is called, I am called Yaakov. You shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael. And most translations, I think, would say, you have striven with God and with human beings and prevailed. Yisra, you struggled with, you, you know, struggled with ale God. And then Jacob asks the angel his name, or the figure his name, and what's the reply? That's none of your business. Okay, because the name of the one with whom he wrestles has not yet been revealed. To whom does it get revealed? Anybody? Gets revealed to Moses. By my name, Yahweh, I was not known to your ancestors. So he's been wrestling with God, however you want to interpret that. Now, what does it mean that he's given a new name here? Okay, what is taking place that he is given a new name at this point? New character. What else? Change in the direction of his life. It's a change in his destiny. He is not forever condemned to be a cheater. Instead, he struggles openly and prevails in his relationship with God and human beings. And thus he becomes the ancestor of B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. Okay, new name, new character, new destiny. Okay. So, now, let's go back to John, to that passage we started with. What does it mean that Jesus renames Peter, or Simon, the rock. What? New destiny. Now, we need to take a look at what rock means. The passage that almost everybody is familiar with is Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Who <coughs> would someone like to read the passage? Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Mm-hmm. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. Now, according to this passage, why is Peter named Rock? Okay, what is the foundation of the church? Is it Peter himself? 
And also, don't forget, who was the first person to confess that Jesus is the Christ? Andrew, not Peter. So is it Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ that is the rock? We have a mixed opinion. We have a mixed opinion. Okay. I want to take another look at the Gospel of John at the end because it goes to the very core of how we understand the scriptures. I'm looking at John 20, verses 30 to 31. Okay? Anybody want to read it? Okay, I'll read it. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, does that phrase, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, does that sound familiar? Where did we just see that? It's what Peter confessed. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what's the rock? It is the faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and faith in him as the Christ, the Son of God. That's the rock. That's the rock. And to whom can this be open? Every one of us. Every one of us. And now I'm setting the table for Brother John to come and show us how this works out in Peter's thought okay. and in our lives. How's that? 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. At your table, you have five, and if I feel generous at the end, six minutes to go through this passage. Read it together. Maybe I'll read it first, and then, well, now you guys read it. Just look at it. And I want you to find every passage, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Every mention of stone, rock, hard thing. And just make a quick note of it. Uh, do as many as you can. I'm going to give you five to six minutes. You can, don't worry about what it all means. I just want you to make the observations. What is he saying about stones, rocks, everything? And it's okay to talk to each other too.
Good. I think I hit the wrong button. It seems to be on, but not working. I hit set. Let's turn it off here. You guys flew through that. It looks like I know you didn't probably get done. You can go back and study it later. I'm not on again. I'm sorry. No, I just wasn't on, but I'll I'll fix it so that's right. So sorry. All right, better, better, better. Okay, now um, I'm going to start. At tables, I'm going to ask you, we're going to start at the first verse, so let's all corporately get to verse 4. What did you learn? What was your first observation in verse 4? I'm just looking at you because I'm friendly. You don't have to. First observation. Stone. What? A living stone. stone. I'm just going to make observations right now. So, we have a living stone. What else did you find out about that in verse 4? Tell me. Next table. What did you find in verse 4? What about the living stone? We are the living stone? No. Are we living stone? She said stone, though. Who's the stone? Verse 4. What does it tell us about verse 4 in the stone? You can all help now. Everybody can help. To whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed... By humans, but chosen of God, impression, uh, precious. Who is that living stone? Jesus. Yes. So, Jesus is the living stone. We're going to put him down here. That's verse 4. This, and all kinds of, we could spend the next hour picking out every one of these things. But the one thing he tells you, what does God think about this living stone? Precious. It's precious. What do some humans think about him? In this verse. What's that mean? Disallowed. We're not using that uh, garbage to to build with. Get that out of there. Okay. Next one. Verse 5. Like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Okay. So is that the only thing in there about stones? Living stones. This is plural. As living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. So who's he talking to and who are these little living stones? Humans. What kind of humans? Where are they sitting? Where are they standing? Where are they? These humans, these living stones. All around, but in, the, in his model, in his, in his analogy. On the, on, on the living stone, the living stones are being installed and put together so that God is doing what? Building, does he say? Verse uh, 5. And a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So these living stones you said that are you, it's all the humans who have said what Peter said. What? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. When you say that and mean it and believe it, like Zev just wrote from the heart, you become a living stone yourself and you get installed onto Jesus, in Jesus, and God's been doing what now for all these years? 2,000 years now, building this huge what? What is it? Said the it's a spiritual house. Church, ecclesia, ecclesia. It means some, something that's been called out from something else. That's all it means. So um, a, a church is a called out group of people. But in this model, it's not just called out. It's being built into something. What's it being built into? A, a, a priesthood, a temple. The stones themselves are. God's temple. Who are the priests in this movement? The stones. Now you got to get your head around that. Seriously, because you guys are mostly Protestants. You can't. Do you realize that? You're a priest? A priestess? That means you have authority. What Zeb was talking about divine authority to function in the spirit of Jesus as a priest or priestess in this world because you are a part of this spiritual priesthood that's being built up. You see how radical that is? Where's the, where, where is the church? Here? And I love this building. I love this building uh, uh, probably more than any building in Stark County. But what is it? This is not the church. This is cool. You. You. You are the temple, walking around alive, living stones. Next verse, and next table back there, the shy ones. <clears throat> verse 6, it's contained in Scripture, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believes on him, the one that believes on him, shall not be confounded. Who are we talking about? Table here. The elect stone laid in Zion. What's Zion? Who went to Israel? Zion, what's Zion? You didn't remember our cool tour guide tripping off on that when we were ascending into Zion. Jerusalem. Behold, I lay in Jerusalem what? A precious stone. And what does he say? And the one that believes. On him, what? Will not be put to shame. So um, the stone that was laid in Jerusalem was who? Jesus. Jesus because, I, and you're going to be surprised when we get to the end. We've got five more minutes. You're going to see how cool this is. We don't believe in Peter, do we? We believe in Jesus, but Peter was the example of one who said, this is who I believe in, in Jesus, and therefore, that's the rock. Jesus is the rock. Yes, sir. Knew he was a rock? Thank you. I wanted you to see this. I didn't want to tell you this. But what's Peter telling you 30 years after the fact? He meets Jesus here. This is halfway through Jesus' ministry, what Zeb just read to you when he, gets, when he calls him the Christ, and he says, your name is Petros, and upon this Petra, I'm going to build my church. That's halfway through Jesus' ministry. We just jumped 30-plus years into the future as an older man. He now says what? Who's the stone? Who's the? Jesus. Not me. Jesus. And who's the living stones? And Jesus is the foundation stone. Keep going. We're going to run out of time. I'm so sorry. Uh, verse 6. Uh, in fact, we missed something in that verse. I'm so sorry. It's not just a precious stone. What did he say it is? <clears throat> What's All right. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? Who builds here? Who's a builder here? Cornerstone. I read one time, if you're one sixty-fourth inch off a perfect square when you lay that first stone, by the end time you get to the end of the building, especially if it's a big one, the uh, finished carpenters are going to hate you because one little error at the beginning 
of the setting, if it's not perfect, magnifies each way as you go down the line. So Jesus, what's he telling you? He's the chief cornerstone. God put him down there and said what? This is perfectly square. You can build off this with confidence. Cool? Now, we're going to run out of time. Verse 7 is the last one we'll be able to go to, and I'll pick it up next week. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he's precious. But unto those which are disobedient, who would those be? The ones that say no to Jesus' claim to be Messiah. Where on, uh, the, um, I'm sorry, uh, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made what? The headstone, the capstone, what stone is that? That's the one you put on the top of every building that you build like this because it's the final, we used to have a course at Malone called the capstone course. It was the final course that you took when you were a senior that supposedly tied everything together. Now, 2,000 years this is going on just to show you how funny we are as humans. So we, here we are, and your bad luck has been, you got stuck next to a Baptist in the, in the pile. <laughs> Come on, just kidding. If you're in this temple, if you're a stone in this temple, God doesn't come by and say, uh, hey, uh, are you Presbyterian? Are you Baptist? Are you Lutheran? Are you if you're on, in this temple, you are what? You're a living stone in God's new temple that God's building. It has nothing to do with denominationalism at all. So, uh, next week, uh, I hope this is cool, but I want to leave it at that. We'll ask questions next week. I think you see what Peter is saying. But here, existentially, personally, I want you to turn to this verse right here. Revelation 2.17. This I would like you to pray about and ponder about this week, as I will too. Now we jumped way into the future. Jesus' message to a church in the book of Revelation. And he promises them that if they allow him to win the victory inside of them, if they are victorious, and we're not victorious unless Jesus does it in us, but he promises them, if they allow Jesus to rule and reign in them and they win the victory, you're going to get something. Anyone see what you're going to get? Ah! I thought of this already. <laughs> you did? Well, you were a really cosmic illuminated woman. Okay. I'm so happy that you brought this up thought of this at the beginning. I was like, oh, I hope they made this one. Well, good. <laughs> what does that mean? You are going to get, every one of you are going to get, in fact, since God's omniscient, it's not like God's going to wait until you uh, walk in through the gates and he's going to say, hmm, well, I guess I'll call you. God already knows your new name. What do you think your new name is? That's not a name. That's a noun. Just think about that. You, each one of you, God has a new name for. What do you think is going to be at the heart and essence of that new name? What is it when, when you, maybe you'll get to know it in this life. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you'll find it when you meet Jesus. But based on everything that you learned today, what's the essence of that new name that when Christ sees you and he calls you by that name, Maybe what, you, what you've done. Somebody said your character. But, but, but remember, when you get a new name, it, it's not like getting the old name. It's like he's not going to say, ah, I know you, Yaakov. The cheater's here, everybody. <laughs> you, who you were, the essence of who you were, your destiny, your role in the cosmic drama. Each one of you has that. Only you can do it. Each one of you has a name that represents your plan, your life, your contribution to this great temple that Christ is building. Is that cool? Pray about your new name this week because it's all about your destiny. God bless you and let's pray before we go. Lord Jesus, thank you for 
giving us Peter that we can learn from. And um, we confess that, yes, all of us are blockheads at many times. And uh, we thank you that he was allowed to be used as an example for so many things and that we now can see ourselves in a new light with a new name, a new character, a new destiny, a new building that we're part of. And of course, you above all, the cornerstone, the capstone, the living stone. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, bye-bye.